This is a Rooster Teeth production. There exists an enigmatic manuscript dating back to the 15th century, filled with intricate writing and surreal art. But the text is in an unknown language and has yet to be deciphered. Today, we're going to discuss the puzzling story of the Voynich Manuscript. This is Red Web. We're back with another mystery, Alfredo. I'm excited about this one because it's it's reminiscent. It's like an old school version of the cicada mystery. Oh, yeah, a lot of a lot of undecipherable language, some some weird drawings in play. All right, so a lot of stuff that I'm not qualified to look at. Pretty much, you're extra is- qualified. <laughs> I mean, anybody can look at this, and no one's gonna know what's going on. Uh, oh, I'm Trevor Collins. That's Alfredo Diaz. This is Red Web. We discuss a new mystery every week. Today, we're going back in time and looking at a 15th century book, undecipherable language, weird pictures, very visual episode. I'll admit that right here at the top. If you want to see some of the uh, some of the books, images, you can head over to our social on Twitter at RedWebPod. We're going to post some images there, but you can also Google image because there is a lot to see. This is a very visual thing. But yeah, this one's exciting. I like I like this kind of stuff. Oh, Okay. Point of business, though, you know, I found out something today this morning that finally we've got a date for the Red Web Task Force merchandise uh, yeah. coming on April 6th. Yeah. You know, uh, get, your, get your calendars out, mark them up, put a stamp on it. I don't know what you need to do with it. Stab ah, a knife in the date. Get excited. <laughs> we got Red Web merch. That's awesome. Dude, it, it, it's... I might, have so to cool. leak. I might have to leak a couple images out because like, it, I'm excited. It's, it looks so good. I won't tell nobody. I won't, I won't tell nobody, but I'll tell, I'll tell you guys. But I'll tell everybody. <laughs> but I'll tell everybody. <laughs> All right. So this, uh, this one, like I said, very visual. We're going to describe the book and kind of how it's laid out. Then we're going to go into the history of the book, how it came to be, where people think it came from before diving into the man who brought it into the modern era and of course, as always, ending with the theories, trying to assess what this book actually means, perhaps where it came from, was it supernatural or something else? There's, there's a lot of theories on this book, uh, but let's dive in. So this book is very interesting. It's a plain brown cover on this book, but it's made of goat skin and has no titles to be seen on the front. It's about the size of a paperback book, and the book has uh, about 240 pages. Each of these pages are also made out of vellum, which is a finer version of parchment, which is made from the skin of calves, which are young cows. So we have a, a very leather-bound book. Mm, we, well, we, what it sounds like we have here is the devil's book. It, okay? it sounds like the devil's book. It really does. <laughs> when you're describing this to me, I'm like, okay, that's the book of the devil. Like, How many is, creatures what, had to die to make this happen? What the hell? This is... Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. we're off mm. to a strong start. I don't like that. It's worth noting that the goatskin cover is is not considered to be the original. Uh, Many people think that perhaps there was a wooden cover or some other tanned leather cover that was used beforehand. We may never know, but the only way you can tell is really seeing how it's bound and seeing perhaps this has been rebound a few times. But the goatskin cover is the one that is on it right now. It's also worth noting that 30 pages of text are missing from this book which could contain anything from the author's name to a cipher to decrypt this book to to just another chapter. We don't really know what's missing. Oh, see, that's intriguing. Like, mm. 
why? You know? Why? Yeah. Maybe someone got hungry. I don't know. You know, like yeah, this is you know, animal hey, parts. Desperate of the book. time, desperate measures. <laughs> but to, to take something out of it, it's got to have some importance. You know. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to keep something from someone unless it's important to you. You know, maybe someone made some nice shoes out of this. Okay. You know, a fine pair of leather shoes with oh, some like cryptic no text shoes? on it. Uh, man, let me tell you, if someone made shoes out of that. It's skilled. Yeah, Very skilled. Know, I don't know. I don't know. But this book is largely comprised of text, again, from an unknown language with strange, almost dreamlike drawings throughout the book. Some in the margins, some taking up entire pages. Many of these drawings feature herbs and plants. Some of them are assumed to be imaginary because they are either combinations of known plants or plants that look entirely strange to us as we know them. There are fantasy creatures like dragons in here. And also throughout the book are people, but mostly women, and all of them tend to be naked. That's, that's mostly the drawings that you'll see. Now, when it comes to the writing, uh, some of the letters seem to be borrowed from other languages, such as the A or the E. There are a few instances containing extraneous text written in Latin script, but ultimately a lot of these symbols seem unique and different. There are about 170,000 characters and a little over 8,000 unique words, or what could only be described as words, because again, this language is unknown and hasn't been deciphered. The characters used in this book are, are also really interesting. Some are totally unique, only appearing once in the entire book. Some of them appear various times, but only at the start of words or only at the end of words. Some don't appear to resemble any known letters from any other specific language. And some of them appear twice in a row or three times in a row. It's all very strange, these characters. And that's what really kind of sends people into thinking that this is some sort of cipher or some sort of different unknown language. That's where the mystery of this book is basically originates from, is these strange drawings combined with God knows what it's ever written on these pages. Yeah, that's weird, like, devil book. <laughs> that's what I'm going to call it. <laughs> um, like, who knows, right? Like, But someone took the time to to write all these things out and, mm -hmm. and, and code it and everything. It's a whole nother language. Who knows, right? Maybe someone just has a lot of time on their hands. Right. That's That's what they're doing with their time. But it's got a lot of us confused. There's a lot of in the in history of man. There's there's a lot of downtime. Let's just say it like it is. People got some time making making books out of animals. I yeah. <laughs> I wonder <laughs> I wonder how many of these like mysteries were yeah. if any were just people that sat there and went I got time on my hands I'll cause I'll cause a ruckus some confusion. You know what? Probably too many. Probably too many. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like half of them are like that, where it's someone's like, I know what you don't. Yeah. And they and they don't lay any clues to what's going on. But, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about imagery. We're talking a lot about these these words. Real quick, just to add some more uh, to your mental picture of this book. The drawings are, they tend to be crudely painted with colors like red, green, blue, and yellow. And the book also appears to be split into six specific sections, like chapters almost. But like I said, we're, we're a bit vague, so why don't we dive into what these sections are about so you can kind of get a more concrete idea of what this book might be about. Now, these sections are based on what they're seeing, what the art is saying uh, to, to whoever's looking at it. So the first section is referred to as the botanical section. This one takes up one third of the book, probably the biggest of the six chapters, so to speak. There are a couple paragraphs per page with herbs and flowers drawn in the empty spaces. 
It appears to resemble other European herbal books, if you're familiar with those. Basically, a book that documents all of the species of plants in the area, almost like one of those survival kits, right? Like, this is what you can live off of. This is what the state of Idaho has to offer, right? <laughs> it's it's kind of like that. The drawings in this section are actually a little bit cleaner than the drawings in later sections, even the sections that also contain plants. It seems like a lot of attention to detail was put into this first section, and whether the later sections were rushed, maybe whoever made this was at the end of their long life, or whatever reason, it just seems that there was a lot of attention to detail put in this first section. Many of the plants are actually easy to identify, but they're also made up of different plants. For example, one might have the flower of one plant with the leaves of another, but the root system of an entirely third different plant, which is interesting and strange at the same time. That's a, that's a whole bunch of stuff that I just would never get into. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, we, uh, maybe it's just a really weird nature book. Could be a weird nature book, you know, like a like the first farmer's almanac and someone's like, I'm going to goof around with them. I'm going to give them it's the body of a carrot with the color of an apple <laughs> and the stem of a peach. This will yeah. get them. Maybe it's a prank text for people like us in the year 2400. They will have no idea yeah, what went no on. <laughs> clue. I mean, come on. Someone's doing that. Someone out there is just like this will cause some confusion down the Th line. There's absolutely some crazy mysteries brewing right now. Like hey. someone's writing some sort of book. You're right. Goddess. You know what I'm saying? I'm just let you know right now. Goddess. Goddess. <laughs> <laughs> the second section is about astronomy and astrology. And this starts to really kind of open the book's kind of topics up. But it's, it, well, it, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's the, This book seems to be almost random in its topics. But when you look back on it, it kind of makes sense given the time period. But anyway. The second section is all about the stars. There are circular diagrams with suns and moons throughout this section, language written physically in circles, almost like this, this kind of gives me a lot of Lord of the Rings imagery because this writing looks very elvish. Uh, if you're familiar with the movies, you know, when, oh, yeah. the, when the ring lights up, casts across Frodo's face, and you're just like, whoa. Uh, it kind of reminds me of that language, uh, or at least that written style. And, uh, and it's also written in circles a lot in this chapter, so it really has that imagery to it. Twelve of these diagrams have easily identifiable astrological symbols at the center, suggesting that this is some sort of astrological chart. Some of those identifiable charts include the fish for Pisces or the bull for Taurus, and each with drawings of 30 mostly female and partly nude people holding stars. And again, this is where the, the more crude drawings come into place. Uh, if it was me making this, they'd be all stick figures. This is basically the next step up from stick figures. <laughs> it's not bad, but I'm not hanging it on my fridge, you know? <laughs> One, yes, no, I can attest. <laughs> Trevor <laughs> does draw stick we figures. You, we slid you some pages. You can take a look. There's some, uh, you know, there's adult content in there. You know, there's some 2D uh, ladies, okay, and men. It so, doesn't look as like I don't know. It looks. It doesn't a look lot so sinister, huh? Peaceful than I thought it would. It's very calming. That's a, that's actually really good that you said. Uh, that's true. Oddly enough, like it just seems kind of peaceful. Like, oh, okay, here are different plants and whatnot. Obviously, none of this makes sense looking at it. Sure. 
It's very elegant. I mean, and, and what better way for the devil to seep into your soul oh, than God. some lovely looking uh, language? Hey, don't. It's cool, man. Thank you just for sign with me your back blood here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just prick your thumb and put it here. Just don't even worry about it. Look how cool the font is, though, right? Like, so that's what we're looking at. Yeah. But anyway, that's the second section. The third section is referred to as the balneological section, essentially referring to baths which is what I was getting at earlier, or uh, specifically the treatment of illnesses with medicinal baths. And that comes, again, from the drawings therein. There are a lot of people sitting in what appear to be baths, and there's a lot of dense texts as well. These baths are oddly connected by pipes that carry water, and they're all from page to page, which makes it very intricate, it seems, especially when you're writing on high-quality parchment made out of calves you, you can't really mess up yeah. so it's it's interesting and the water is also colored green and so now i don't know how many times i've referenced this movie in this in this podcast but now i'm suddenly getting a lot of matrix vibes it's a great movie where everyone's everyone's in tubes you know like everyone's like plugged into a system oh this is oh man like i just don't know what to think of this i know There's so right? much care that went into it and the, the cool thing is, this is actually something that you can touch, look at, see. Well, no touch. Oh, yeah. Well, if you wanted to. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Grab some sort um, of curse. Yeah, good luck getting your hands on it. But, I mean, you could look at it. It's an actual physical thing. Yeah. You, I mean, you, yeah, you can find images online. You can try to decipher it yourself. This is one of those, get your hands on it, like you're saying. Get in there, get your hands dirty, and see if you can get involved. Like, maybe, maybe try to decipher this yourself. Oh, hey, good luck. But good luck, truly. It's <laughs> it's been around for hundreds of years and hundreds of years. Yeah, or, or supposedly there's there's some theories in play yeah, here. Yeah, right, but, right. Okay, so so far we have botanicals, we have astronomy and astrology, and then we have medicinal baths. Can you guess perhaps where we're going from here? We have three more sections to cover. Uh, I'm just curious. So yeah, astronomy, medicinal baths. What was the third one? Uh, botanical, like plants. Yeah. Mm. Jeez. Uh, where do we go from there? Sky. Well, Ooh. Let's go. yeah. Sky might huh? be one. Maybe mountains or underground, something like that. Okay. Or the ocean. Ocean could be another one. I think sky is good because section okay. four is cosmology, which huh. kind of relates back to the second section. But the drawings in this section and the diagrams point towards cosmological and astronomical studies. But the drawings are more abstract than the earlier section because I was confused when I was first reading this. I was wondering why they would be separate sections. But perhaps yep. one is more about deciphering star signs and the other is maybe more about the astrological bodies and the moving of... Uh, I don't know. It's... it's it, No one knows, really. Yeah. But there are foldouts in this section. And, and I'm telling you, you've got an ability to read brains. I said it in the last episode. I'm saying it now. You know, you say, you say something about oceans and maps and skies and mountains. You know, in this, there's actually six pages dedicated to one large drawing that folds out. There are a lot of foldouts in this section, but this one has small islands nicknamed the Rosettes because that's what these foldout sections are referred to. Oh, a cute name. Okay. Yeah. And these <laughs> islands contain castles and volcanoes uh, that are connected to roadways that resemble maps. So, you know, in a way... You're you're kind of on the ball. You're kind you're kind of picking up what this section's all about. These drawings, at least. Look, I'm just going with my gut. 
since day one of this podcast, you might be, my gut at it. You might be too. You might be too. Uh, your gut's too good. There's something wrong there. The fact that you're this close to these mysteries, like th- maybe that's why you don't want me to dive in. I'm going to discover something you don't want to know about yourself. Please don't tell me if you discover something. <laughs> Some kind of like Alfredo, supernatural demon prodigy. <laughs> Just don't tell me. I like I like living this normal life. Right this now. is like when I was like eight and I was like, mom, when I turn 13, is something going to happen to me? Yeah. She's like, what are you talking then. about? I'm like, am I going to become a mermaid or like a vampire the or something? Mermaid. Hey, I don't know. I don't know what that Disney <laughs> Channel was. Or was. Merman. Merman. I just remember the guy when he started getting his mermaid powers and he was Spider-Manning up the wall. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how mermen are like Spider-Man, but. Yeah, what? <laughs> and then he got a tail and went home with his mom. I, it, that, what was listen. this? Okay, fine. We're, we're Googling. We're doing it. Disney Channel movie Mermaid. I mean, it's town, it definitely sounds the 13th like a Disney year. Channel movie. Anyway, the next couple sections are, are pretty straightforward. The fifth one is referred to as the pharmaceutical section. Oh. It's sectioned with pages dedicated to one specific herb or flower with short paragraphs, presumably about that flower. So to be specific, it might be about... You know, this one might have a drawing of what looks like a sunflower and then a short paragraph about that flower. The next page will have a different one, etc., etc. There are pictures of apothecary jars and other more fantastical drawings. And so, again, we can only presume from the images as to what they're trying to put into this, what the information is saying. And it could be referring to the medicinal properties or these herbs as ingredients for for lack of a better word, potions. And then the sixth section kind of goes hand in hand with the last one, and it's referred to or nicknamed the recipes because it is only text and there are short bulleted paragraphs and the bullets are all shaped like flowers. And that's all this section has to offer, no no drawings. And so if you just looked at it as a format, it does tend to look like recipes. And we have, Jillian's provided a couple links here in the chat if you want to take a look at the oh, recipes, yeah. the rosettes, etc. See. This this book is, you know, I, I sat here and was like, oh, this is the devil's book. Now it's like this false sense of like security that I'm getting here. I'm thinking, I'm sitting here going like, oh, this is like, this is like some Harry Potter stuff. You know? Oh my, like, yeah, you know what? The Marauder's Map. Oh. That's, that's Dude, what this, this is- rosette looks like. The six page fold out. It looks like the, the Marauder's Map on, uh, of a castle. This to look, whoever unlocks this is going to have a lot of powers. Yeah, they're going to see exactly where I'm taking a dump. They're going to see where everybody's walking around this planet. That would be the worst power to have. Can you imagine? <laughs> just like, <laughs> I've got the power of Marauder's Map for the planet. I, get, I just know where things are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that thing's there. Yeah, so that's that's the book kind of in a nutshell. That's what we got going on in there. And it's again, your gut instinct right on track that, you know, we've got some other Harry Potter references coming up. But truly... I think what is really happening here is that this document, this manuscript, has inspired a lot of pop culture. A lot of current legends or myths all kind of coalesce to inspire things like Harry Potter. But I think this is just kind of one of those things. It's just a lot to look at. Like, I, I, like, I like that there's, vi- just, there's just visuals to this one. You know what I mean? You know, like a good book, you, you just love to open it and see pictures. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm simple. I love <laughs> pictures in my books, okay? You, get, you put some pictures in my books, I like the book. And there's a lot of pictures here, so. Yep. It, God, it was like going through a history book as a kid. And when you, when you got to the page with a 
big old drawing on it or a big old portrait and you're like, ah, the paragraph's tiny. Oh yeah. You're like, oh, thank God. My, my homework reading went fast. Yeah. It just went shorter. Yeah. So that's the description of the book. Why don't we dive into the history? This, the history is a bit dense, but we're going to go through all of it and we're going to kind of condense it down at the end. And then we're going to dive into Wilfred Voynich himself, the man who brought it into the kind of the modern era, the person who, after which it's named. Mm. The creator is still unknown. I don't know if we'll ever know who ultimately created this, but we do have some knowledge about the history here. And some of it is hearsay, um, but up until a certain point, it does become factual. Now, the first alleged owner of the Voynich manuscript was Rudolf II. And we believe that because one of the later owners did in fact claim that Rudolf had owned it at a certain point. Rudolf II was a Roman emperor. He was king of Hungary and Croatia, and later was king of Bohemia and the Archduke of Austria. It is said that he purchased it for 600 Venetian ducats in the 16th century. He also had the Codex Gigas, which is known as the Devil's Bible, and uh, and collected a lot of art and exotic animals. So this man is attracted to to the dark. Demonic things. <laughs> the yeah. dark side. Let me get the devil's Bible and a couple exotic dead animals. Uh, this was the deep, uh, the dark web before the dark web was you know, true. an internet thing. You know? This is the dark library. Yeah. It is said he was interested in astrology and alchemy. And he spent his whole life, in fact, seeking the mythical philosopher's stone. Now, this is where your gut checks start to really freak me out. Because we got some Harry Potter references here. You know, we got the Devil's Bible stuff. Oh, dang. But you'll see the common thread with the owners, or the supposed owners, is that there is a through thread of alchemy, astrology, and mathematics involved with the people that uh, get their hands on this. And that kind of lends the credence to the idea that this book might just be all about alchemy, or at least, you know... The idea of alchemy, right? The, the right. legend that you can turn things into other things, that this is, for lack of a better word, the magic of the time. So anyway, he's interested in astrology. Alchemy gets his hands on this. Now in 1608, after Rudolf's death, it is believed that the manuscript was then passed to his personal doctor, Jacobus de Tepens. And they say that it passed to him because he owed him money, perhaps. This is probably all strung along because they're just trying to connect the dots from where they know it ended up to where they think it started. But anyway, Jacobus was actually a trained pharmacist. His name is said to be found under ultraviolet light in the text, but it's apparently not his traditional signature. So it's very odd that now, you know, people use ultraviolet light to see what's going on in this text. Maybe there's hidden clues. They find his name, but it doesn't look like his normal signature. But now now the clues start to get really interesting. But fast forwarding a few decades, we have the first confirmed owner of the manuscript, who was George Barish. George Barish was a Czech alchemist, and when describing the manuscript, he said it was a sphinx that took up space uselessly in his library because he could not decipher it. It is unknown how Barish ultimately acquired it, so there is a gap in time between George Barish going back to Jacobus de Tepens that we don't know what happens. Maybe that's where pages were lost. Nowhere in here do we know when pages get lost or if they get lost or what happens to them. So that's worth noting. Yeah, a lot of like passing hands of this thing and, mm-hmm. and people saying that other that this person is the author and this person has it. Uh, so I'm not surprised now why there's some lost right. pages. This thing well, <laughs> it's about to get a little bit more complex, but I'm going to okay. do my best to keep it simple. 
because it it honestly it's going around like a high school rumor and it's impossible to track. <laughs> really? That's honestly that's the best way to put it. 100%. Okay. So now it's 1639. This is 31 years after Rudolph's death and it going to Jacobus. Now, George Barish hears of a well-known scholar named Athanasius Kircher. This person apparently translated some Egyptian hieroglyphics, and so Barish said, you know what, I need some help with this. I'm going to send you some copies of this manuscript so you can check it out, but I'm not going to send you the original. Kircher was a Jesuit scholar and a polymath, and they were known as the master of a hundred arts. And again, it's worth noting that Barish still had the original, Kircher had some copies. But over time, eventually, the book did make its way to Kircher via a friend, a mutual friend of Barish's, who was named Jean-Marc Marcy. Okay, so now this mutual friend is now passing the original book or manuscript over to Kircher, and that is uh, maybe about 25 or so years later in 1665 to 1666, somewhere in there. Okay. Now, Marcy, when giving it to Kircher, or sending it, I should say, also included a letter of somebody named Dr. Raphael. And in this letter, they were saying, hey, I heard that Dr. Raphael said that Rudolph II had this manuscript. And the reason why people believe this, and this is why Rudolph is in play at all, is because Dr. Raphael was actually Rudolph II's lawyer. So there is some pretty uh. strong credence here as to, you know, maybe Rudolph having this. Yeah, it's not just some random person who's like, look, I think this, it's like, this is... Wow, lawyer. Lawyers go way back. <laughs> yeah, lawyers in the in the. It's so strange to think about, but I yeah, mean, like, it's like it makes well, sense. Like, yeah, obviously, that makes sense. But you just never really think about it. You never see it in media too. You know what I mean? During those times, like, oh, I'll deal with my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just think law and order, like doo doo. Somebody shows up in a suit, yeah. and you're like, you're sweating in there. I. It's so funny to think about. You know, like I don't know. It's just like a funny image. Yeah, but, but it makes sense. But another interesting fact that I really want to dive into here in this letter uh, regarding Rudolph II is that Rudolph believed that the author of this mysterious manuscript was actually Roger Bacon. Now, we could do a whole episode probably on Roger Bacon and everything therein, but simply enough, Roger Bacon is a philosopher of the 13th century, and among other accolades, he heavily studied linguistics and alchemy. And if you look at this book, that seems to ring true. Uh, the linguistics come through with the mysterious language that no one can decipher, and the alchemy comes in, theoretically, with all these apothecary jars and these people sitting in these weird baths with weird pipes and a lot of herbs and a lot of ingredients. Um, so it really does seem like there's a strong connection here, but there's no, outside of this letter, there's no other evidence to really help round out that story. Uh, just, just hearing, like, the history of this book, like, uh, there's no it makes sense why people just haven't deciphered it yet this, uh -huh. is, this is dating back to god you know so far back and it's been passed around and mm -hmm. this is i guess we're kind of just lucky to even have it intact at right this point you know what truly I'm saying? truly i mean and again and i'm gonna say this for the thousandth time probably this episode your gut instinct is right on and we're gonna get to that in a second but yeah, the, the fact that this is around at all is interesting, but there's there comes a point in every mystery's life when it's growing up, maybe it's a teenage mystery and going through the, the throes of adulthood, where you, where you just find that you're smacking yourself in the forehead repeatedly because this is one of the reasons why this is a mystery, because its history is so sparse and sporadic. Every mystery has its 
thing that you go, oh, if only like we just, yep. if I could grab that thing and I would, I would know, but then you wouldn't have a mystery and it would just be that's boring true. history. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is what happened with this. And then that's that. And then there you go. Yeah. Well, turns out that Kircher, the now current owner of this manuscript here in the late 1600s, was never able to decipher it. Interestingly enough, almost funnily enough, Kircher's claims earlier uh, in his life about translating Egyptian hieroglyphics also turned out to be completely false. So this guy's selling snake oil. We ended up wasting time on a man who actually couldn't decipher anything. It seems like damn, his resume was falsified. I was I was about to say too, like you know, oh okay, he found someone that was qualified, but the lies, the lies, wasted time. Now I'm not saying this man wasn't a scholar, because uh, clearly they were, but I do think there was something that impeded this manuscript from being translated and because like at this point we're maybe 100 to 200 years past its origination that's already a long time but to spend that time kind of dilly-dallying with someone who doesn't know what they're doing with it and like you know kind of kind of frustrating yeah it is right because especially because you know people get you got this hand down to them and they're trying to figure this out and you know it's like is it worth anything and then you have someone that's just just wasting your time. That's really right. what they're doing. Yeah. Well, now we're going to flash forward almost 200 full years to the year 1870. Now, there are no official records of this. Again, this is where uh, we try to draw the lines and connect the dots. But it is assumed that the book ended up with Kircher's other works in the Collegio Romano and then moved to the Villa Mandragone after Victor Emmanuel II captured Rome. Now, the Villa Mandragone was owned by the Jesuits, and they were low on money at the time, and so they began selling their books. Enter Wilfred Voynich in the year 1903. This is ultimately how it came into modern history. Again, we don't know what happened in those 200 years. We don't know exactly how it got into the villa, but we know that it did because of essentially a fire sale. In 1903, Wilfred Voynich purchased it as well as 30 other manuscripts. In fact, what's really interesting, and I'm very thankful that this happened, the letter that Marcy wrote uh, that refers to Rudolph II, the lawyer, right, that he wrote this to Kircher, it's still in the manuscript, folded up, ready to be read. Oh, damn. A document that is 204 years old at this point, or or maybe, what, 207 years old at this point? So, wow. Yeah, to... I'm guessing it's just one of those things where like, yeah, sure, you're just buying a lot of things and then you just kind of, you know, stumble across that. Right. Well, I believe he was a a collector. We'll dive into Wilfred and his life specifically here in a bit. But yeah, imagine if that letter wasn't in there. I mean, we would literally have no idea. This People would have theorized that this was conjured out of thin air because we literally would have had no history prior to 1900 that really grounded it in in reality like we would have gone to the to the villa it would have just been there at some point yeah, we wouldn't have known like this Ugh. massive history and the trading of like hands and whatnot like really just it really just like makes you wonder what amount of history it was just barely out of reach i was just saying that right like like some mysteries or things that we think are a certain way or 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 not 
right? Mm. When it could have just been like a little piece of it fell off during transportation or like a letter was missing along the way that was attached to it. Right. Like things that would have just like cracked certain mysteries wide open. Yeah. Or changed everything we know about history. I mean, that's true. Well, that's why history's like, honestly, when I was going through school, history was like, Ugh. but like looking back at history now, <laughs> whenever you can look at whatever you want to look at, you don't have a, a curriculum or whatever that this is what makes history cool is because it just like how everything leads up to today. It's just, it's fascinating. Anyway, Wilfred now in possession of the manuscript could not decipher the manuscript with his wife, Ethel. They tried, they were not able to do it. And Ethel actually kept the manuscript herself until she passed away in the year 1960. In her will, the manuscript was given to her friend, Anne Nill, who then sold it to Han P. Krauss, an antique bookseller. There we go, just train hands. Again. Like it, it hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped. There's some curse behind this, you know, like just, they die and then they pass it on. But in 1969, Krauss could not find anyone willing to purchase the manuscript and then donated it to Yale University. Smart man, smart move. Mm-hmm. Put it somewhere uh, with an institution that's going to you know, take care of it. It has since been there in the Bynek Rare Book and Manuscript Library. Now, originally, it was called the MS-408 before becoming colloquially known as the Voynich Manuscript. It is named after Wilfred Voynich, who essentially discovered the manuscript, bringing it into the modern era. So let's dive into Wilfred, get some background there, and then see if we can't take all the things we know and pull the strings together, draw the red web, and uh, and figure out some theories. So Wilfred was born in 1865 in what is now known as Lithuania. He studied chemistry at Moscow University and was a licensed pharmacist. He joined the proletariat, but was arrested in 1886. After escaping Siberia, he moved to London to become a rare book seller. It is said that Voynich had good luck in finding rare books, even obtaining the Mallarmy Bible, which is the first Bible translated from Latin into Italian. And in, in 1902, he married Ethel Bull, who was the author of the novel The Gadfly, and a daughter of George Boole, who was the mathematician and inventor of Boolean algebra. So we got a lot of really smart people in play, a lot of really yeah. well-known people that are all connected and connected to this book. It's very, you know, that's actually really interesting. We have a, a Roman emperor and the people that they know. Uh, we have some leading scholars of their time. We have Voynich here, luckily stumbling into this book as well as others. And then the daughter of another famous mathematician. It's, it's very intriguing. You don't just accidentally do that, you know? Yeah, we've had mysteries that are like this, right? Where it's just like, oh, this thing popped up and now just like everyone is trying to figure it out. But this is something that is just like it's kind of just like time travel do you know it's like this era it, this these people have had it and these were mm-hmm. people of knowledge and are qualified to kind of like figure it out or maybe crack it open and then it gets handed off to another era in time and then also two people that are qualified and to the next qualified person that's uh that's new yeah you know what this really reminds me of the holy grail now, the Holy Ooh. Grail could be just about anything, right? It could be yeah. knowledge. It could be an actual cup. You know, it could be whatever. But, like, it's just another historical thing that has a lot of mystery around it. Obviously, we have this tangibly. We know where this is. But it passes through a lot of high-ranking and well-known people. It's just, I don't know. This is just very interesting. I, I almost wouldn't be surprised if something like this was 
supposedly the Holy Grail, right? Like a story yeah. of the past. Uh, like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but it just comes to mind. But anyway, eventually Voynich opened another bookstore in the United States. As I mentioned, he was a rare bookseller in, in Europe, and now he's over here in the United States. And as a result of his time in Siberia, he could actually speak 18 different languages, though not all of them fluently. And that certainly would help someone with a book of this nature in trying Jeez. to decipher it. 18. 18. Wow. Listen, you say, I don't know, man. People in the past had a brilliance that we just don't fully comprehend, you know? Yeah, that is insane. Um, you just go around. I feel like you just travel anywhere and be able to just adapt and speak. And oh, that's cool. That's so That cool. would be really cool, yeah, to be a polyglot. Eventually, he ended up being investigated by the FBI because of rumors relating to him and having Francis Bacon's cipher. Supposedly, the FBI was just trying to investigate that. Now, again, Bacon's cipher is something that we could do a whole episode on, but Bacon Cipher is a type of coded message hidden with steganography. Now, we've talked about steganography before when we referred to Cicada 3301. It's very prominent in that, but it's essentially just the practice of concealing a message within another message or within some other physical object. It is a very popular cipher, perhaps most famously associated with the theory of hidden messages within Shakespeare's plays. In fact, some people believe that Shakespeare had a ghostwriter and that Francis Bacon was that ghostwriter. And they Ooh. used the cipher as some sort of proof of that. And the reason why I really start to get into the weeds of the cipher is because it's worth, you know, an example of this cipher being used is, for example, like the first letter of every sentence hiding the true meaning of what's being written. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's not the cipher, it's not how it works, but I say that because if you recall, back to the early part of the episode when I talked about characters and to talk about some of the writing and some of the patterns therein, it really feels that there is a connection between either Bacon's cipher or some sort of cipher and what's going on in the text written in this book. And that's why a lot of people think that it is a language to be cracked, that there is some sort of hidden message to it, that it isn't just this needs to be translated to whatever, that it needs to be decoded. I, I think it's interesting that the that's something that the FBI would get involved in. You know what I mean? I think it was mostly because there were rumors to him having Francis Bacon's cipher, and that's why they got involved. It was it wasn't so much because of the manuscript, right? As much as it was just. But but even the then, cipher. like for a cipher for something, you know what I mean? It doesn't unless yeah. it completely went over my head. Like it didn't seem like that cipher uh, unlocked anything devious or. Right? Yeah, I don't know much about Francis Bacon. So I've heard about it. I don't know, Christian, unless you have some more background on that. Or Jillian. Not a whole lot of history on the cipher. It's just, like said in the outline, I think that's kind of its biggest, I don't want to say claim to fame, but it might be one of the reasons it's most known is because it connects to that Shakespeare theory. Yeah, and I think, you know, the FBI is just trying to like, first of all, you got to think early to mid 19th century or 1900s, I should say. Like, ciphers and codes and stuff that, that's the big part of the military at that time governments talking to one another governments oh, talking within yeah. themselves there's a lot that's of like true. coded sos and stuff that like makes that, more know? sense because there's so many times i've been like why isn't the government getting involved like figure this out because it seems like it could be very malicious yeah but uh yeah during those times yeah that was a big thing mm-hmm but that's interesting, you know, that that's in play. And now I don't want to get these Bacons conf confused. We have Francis Bacon here. And then earlier on, we were talking about Roger Bacon. Two different people, but both very interesting in their own rights. 
Is it a recipe book or is it an apothecary book? Is it a pharmacy book or is it spells and incantations stolen from Hogwarts? We'll never know. Or will we? I don't know. That's the mystery. Anyway, you know me. It's your old friend, Trevor, just here to do some housekeeping notes here in the middle of the episode. Hope you're all doing well. Thank you all so much for sharing the podcast. Appreciate you all. If you want to be part of the, the task force, I'm, I'm so excited about it. We're forecasting this like weeks out, but April 6th, we got the task force merch coming your way at store.roosterteeth.com. You can support the show. We've already got a coffee mug. We've already got a shirt there. If you want to jump in a little early, Slide that in, get that in your wardrobe and in your morning collection. Would greatly appreciate it. But with that said, why don't we dive into the sponsors that help make this show possible? This episode of Red Web is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know that every day someone tells you that you just have to listen to some podcast. And you nod and you say, sure, and then you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan's show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest, and when they say there's something for everyone, they really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator from the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which sounds useful and disturbing all at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a professional art forger who somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. I recommend checking out Jordan's conversations that he features in episode 471 with Steve Hassan entitled the hashtag I got out guide to quitting QAnon. For those of you who like online conspiracy theories and things of that nature, I think that one will be interesting for you. There's another one also that takes a step outside of the internet and steps into the world of finance and marketing, which personally I've found very fascinating recently. And that's episode 476 with Dan David, and that's putting the muscle on the China hustle. If you, any, if you know anything about the China hustle, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. There's stuff going on in the financial world, and this goes back a few years, but uh, it's, it's just a different realm for mysteries and, uh, and conspiracies and beyond. So if you like what we do here on this show, I think you'll like those episodes. Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. And they're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom that you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. So search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Red Web is also sponsored by Raycon. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm always looking at a screen, now more than ever. And whether you're an avid news watcher or in serious need of a distraction, unplugging yourself is easier said than done. One of my favorite ways to rest my eyes and still get the content I'm itching for is by putting in my Raycon wireless earbuds and listening to something great. Raycons are built to perform anywhere and anytime with water and sweat-resistant construction and Bluetooth that pairs quickly and seamlessly. And with enough battery life for six hours of playtime, you can unplug for quite a while. 
Personally, uh, Raycon sent me a pair of these headphones to try out for myself, and I'm grateful for them for it because I like to go on my afternoon walks. That's right. I'm an 82-year-old man. Get over it. I like to go on walks, and I listen to music. It is my escape. It is what I am built on. I love music. It speaks to me, and so I appreciate the sound quality uh, that I get from these very minimal headphones. Uh, I know a lot of wireless ones stick out and stuff, but these look very nice, and they fit right into your You're very comfortable. They're not going anywhere. So whether you're walking or running or sweating away, truly, they're sticking in there, and I really appreciate having these headphones. Raycon's offering 15% off all of their products for our listeners, and here's what you gotta do if you wanna get that, okay? Go to buyraycon.com slash redweb, and that's it. You'll get 15% off your entire Raycon order, so you can feel free to grab a pair and a spare for all that walking and running and whatever you need. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash redweb, buyraycon.com slash redweb. Now, with that said, let's get right back into it. Now, jumping back to Voynich, he hired William Newbold of University of Pennsylvania to decipher the script, but then William claimed the text itself was meaningless. Newbold claimed that there was a code hidden in tiny markings of ink within meaningless letters, viewable only by microscope, which raises questions to me, which is like, how would they do that at the supposed time of the writing of this, right? Yeah. If it's hundreds of years old, how did they write microscopically? Maybe there's something we don't know about, but ultimately there is very little evidence of this, and the markings are most likely just natural markings that occurred with ink or in the process of making this parchment or in making this manuscript in general. But wasn't able to decipher it ultimately. And that's kind of the the long and short, I, mostly long, uh, the history of this manuscript leading up to today, it being with Yale University still. And, uh, and yeah, so let's dive into some of the theories. Do you have any, uh, I gotta tap your gut check one more time. Do you have any feelings, inclinations w regarding this manuscript, whether it's nefarious or something a little bit more mundane? How do you feel? I, I feel like this, I mean, honestly, as, as weird as it looks, um, I feel like it's more mundane. I feel like this is something that, yeah. you know, you know, that kind of ties to like alchemy and one that's more in touch with like nature. And that's why it has like the, the, you know, the animal like backing and um, all that kind of stuff. So I, I feel less like this is an evil mm -hmm. book and more so like just someone's studies. Yeah. I mean, that, that really feels to me like what's going on here as well. But let's dive into some of the smaller theories that purport to explain what's going on before diving into the more popular, more, I should say, well-rounded theories. Now, because the writing in the Voynich manuscript still is yet to be deciphered, okay, one theory that's been brought up a few times, okay, you know where this is going, was that this was created by aliens. Let's get it out on the table. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> the unknown plants, the unknown cosmological diagrams all could suggest an extraterrestrial knowledge, or perhaps even origin, uh, of this information. Maybe uh, a passerby, uh, a traveler of the universe, stops by, zaps up a couple cows, maybe a goat plops down a book out of them, and uh, of information, and then yeah, heads the, off. That that that's the thing that doesn't line up for me, right? Like, why would they write it in like a, you know, why would they like take one of our animals and then use that to write the book? Right. A commonly um, used kind of product. Why wouldn't they make it out of some sort of like, I don't know, metal or something that couldn't potentially degrade or be torn? Yeah. Or, you know, or, you know if you're getting really weird with it, maybe they 
picked up a, a human, took him on a tour, you know what I mean? And Woo! the human was writing stuff down. This was and someone's fever dream? Yeah. They're kind of like, you know, This is I what I dream. saw, my experience, and here's this yeah. other language. Like, you think it's like some a language to be deciphered, uh, but just like it's a whole other language altogether. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's uh, it's interesting. I think the fact that there's a lot of familiar plants that are all kind of like, almost like a puzzle kind of mixed up, Mm-hmm. familiar things i i don't know i don't know about extraterrestrial plant life you know i uh, i'm gonna move on from this one <laughs> it's also theorized that the book was written by witches for the same reason which was to keep their secrets unknown that this language was only used between them and it was used to communicate uh, rituals potions recipes etc between uh, other people that they trusted which I find to be interesting, whether it's witches or other just groups of individuals, even scholars. Uh, there's something, there's definitely something there. And I think these coming theories kind of expound upon that in a better way. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, that theory can stick for me in the sense of like, you know, whether or not you believe uh, magic or any of that kind of stuff is real. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that actually believe that they were witches or wizards or whatever they may be and obviously like believe it and so Mm -hmm. live it and this is a part of them living it so this is just like a part of what they believe yeah i mean like there are demonstrable examples of exactly what you're saying right wiccans in the modern time and uh in relics that they might have and pass down and stuff it's it's interesting it's it's like again this is one of those times where we have a very fascinating topic that kind of taps into entirely different topics that really starts to open the doors of well now i want to make an episode about that yeah but anyway let's dive into the first theory which i find very intriguing and really gets my mind wandering oh here we go it's it's nothing nefarious it's it's kind of like it, it almost feels a little bit mundane, but it's that this is an unknown language lost to time. You know, many theories suggest that the Voynich manuscript could have been written in an unknown but natural language. It could have been a language that was dying at the time, that it was written or only known by a few people. If the origin of it kind of popping up in Eastern Europe is also where it was written. You know, if you look at the socio-political evolution of that space, even in recent history, let alone, you know, going back hundreds of years, it, there was a lot of languages coming and going, a lot of cultures meshing and melding and country lines overlapping and flowing and whatnot. A lot of wars, a lot of a lot of things went down in that area. And it's totally possible that there was a language or a culture that was sparse or unknown at the time. And, uh, you know, like we, we think about undiscovered or you know, like tribes in South America or uncontacted, I should say, that mm-hmm. we know of, but we haven't like crossed that border to to contact them and interrupt their culture. Who's to say that maybe uh, several hundred years ago, we had cultures like that, even as close to home, I guess, as it were, as as Europe, right? There's a lot of area and a lot of land for people to to kind of be secluded. And maybe maybe this is their history. I love this theory. It's just so a, cool. Just, just, you know, lost to time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a that's a, that's a <gasps> thing, you know, the number of things that we just we don't know or just don't exist anymore. Atlantis. <gasps> That'd be so cool. It'd be but so like, cool. I mean, I don't know. The ocean's pretty vast and we still have yet to explore most Ooh, of it. Like, we should do an Atlantis episode. There yeah, is a whole should. thing that with the Sahara, like, with the... Really? Yeah, that oh. sounds fun. 
That sounds fun. It's uh, it's riveting. It's definitely compelling. Anyway, I, I, I've been doing this thing now. Where every time we go into an episode, I start like bringing in other mysteries, but I don't know. Something to explore. I like that. Something to explore. But let's talk about an example of this happening factually. Because in the Easter Islands, there was a language that was primarily spoken and rarely written. It was called Rongorongo. It was discovered in the Eastern Islands by glyphs that were on wooden objects. Now, it's theorized that this, these glyphs, this writing was some form of proto-writing consisting of visible marks that communicates limited information. Now, we take for granted that we can write full sentences and that we communicate in the way that we do, but we, it makes it very hard to fathom any other form of communication. So it's totally possible that this could be language that was rarely written, mostly spoken, that when you look at it, it would actually be kind of like shorthand. And you would need to kind of know the nuances of that communication. If you think of like, what's the movie? Arrival? Is that what it is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a great example of learning a new way to communicate that totally changes your mindset. And so this could be an example of a language that we just kind of can't fathom. But anyway, I, I digress. This proto-writing on these glyphs, it used ideographic or mnemonic symbols instead of true text to kind of imply the meaning, but with limited information, rather than, again, spelling out full words, full sentences, full syntax, etc. No one alive today can read this language, for example. So there are languages like this or, or similar situations. So it's totally possible. You know what? I like that theory. I, be I believe it. Like I do too. Yeah. And let's drive it home further. Now, when it comes to language, entropy is a physics and science language term, but there are, you can use it in language. And when referred to in language, entropy is essentially the rate of which language is predictable. When you, when you start typing out a word in your phone, it can start to say, are you typing thanks? Or are you typing thanksgiving? Or are you typing there? Or are you type like what, you know, you just type in a TH and it starts yeah. to guess. The rate of entropy in this language here, in the manuscript, is actually quite similar to that of the English language, or English text. Essentially implying that there is some flow going on, that there is, that it's not random, that it's not gibberish made up. Because like, for example, when someone's speaking in tongues, they tend to repeat a handful of syllables a lot, and the entropy there is completely different than that of a full, true language. Another thing here is that some of the letters and groups of letters in this manuscript have similar patterns, right? They end similarly, much like a lot of English words end similarly with ED or ING. So there are these patterns throughout this text that kind of imply that, yeah, this is probably a proper language. There's a lot of similarities here to known languages, at least as a pattern, you know. I, I, I completely subscribe to this theory. Mm-hmm. Another interesting thing here, and I'm gonna, I think I really do kind of subscribe to this one. There's a lot behind it, but there's also a lot behind the other ones too. But in his personal research, Stephen Bax of the University of Bedfordshire claimed that he had found some proper nouns in the text based on the accompanying drawings of the pages. So for example, right, if you're looking at a drawing of a coriander or some type of plant that you know the name of, it's likely that you can assume that the first word of that page might be coriander, especially if it's a, a word by itself, almost like a dictionary. Here's the word, here's the description. And doing this 
in his research, he was like, okay, maybe this is how I can decipher it. I can look at what the picture is, figure out what that is in English, and then look at the common words on this page, especially the first one, and see if there's any way I could backtrack out of that information. Yeah, just trying to really, like, sit there and tear it apart, right? Piece by Mm -hmm. piece. And then try and look at, take a step back, look at the pieces and go, how do these connect? Exactly. Like, what are the patterns? Is there anything here? Is this, again, this is where you figure out if it's a cipher or if it's like, like a Rosetta Stone situation where you are trying to, one for one, translate it to something else. Now, he didn't totally decipher the text, but he does have this to say, quote, My research shows conclusively that the manuscript is not a hoax, as some have claimed, and it is probably a treatise on nature, perhaps in a Near Eastern or Asian language. End quote. Uh, A treatise just basically being a a book about nature in this particular instance. Just a, a book about the foliage around the place, whatever location this was written in. And so that's, I mean, that feels relatively conclusive to me, but obviously he doesn't have all the answers, and this is kind of A very educated guess. And the last couple thoughts on this particular theory, we have NSA linguist James R. Child, who also could not decipher it, but he said the manuscript contains the, quote, skeletal syntax, several elements of which are reminiscent of certain Germanic languages, end quote. So again, we have another professional coming forward saying that statistically, yes, you've got some some good patterns here, but syntaxically, or if that's even a word, you're looking at very similar structures to Germanic languages, right? Okay. So, like, we have a lot of a lot of well-researched, well-read folks coming forward. That's what I love about this. Yeah. So many, like, knowledgeable people, like, mm-hmm. experts on it. Like, as much as it's trading hands, like I said, so many experts are getting their hands on it, which is really cool because that's not something, like, we, we usually have, like, Maybe one expert that takes a look at it. Yeah. Um, but this is like so many people are trying to take a crack at it. I mm-hmm. love that. I love that. That's that's what I like. If this disappeared to time, that's what would make this so like intrig like even more intriguing, sure, but also so frustrating. If this like disappears within our lifetime and then our kids' kids are like, you ever hear of the the Voynich manuscript, the script, the book that disappeared and we'll never know what it said. Like, <laughs> at least this is here. And and mm-hmm. much like the recent episode we did on the Zodiac, it can be perhaps deciphered, decoded, yeah. Yeah. Uh, translated. Now. So like, that's what gets me really excited about this. And one last piece on the idea of this being a lost or a hidden language is that, you know, to, to continue to round out this theory. Many people think that this perhaps was an intentionally crafted language, one that was consciously created by a single person or a group of people, whether it was a cultural thing developed over time or whether it was just like a fun thing between people. Like, you know, some people come up with their own languages. Some people come up with it for literature. If you think of Lord of the Rings, I know Jillian and I were talking about this looking a whole lot like Elvish, uh, Jillian being one of our researchers uh, for Red Web. And it looks awful like like elvish i mean like and it and it's impo- it's totally possible that you know either someone came up with this language for their own intentional record keeping and this is the only evidence of it like i i don't know it's just that that open ended thought is just so fascinating just i, just, I don't know it, it's i guess like this is one of the mysteries that put kind of puts a smile to my face right yeah. which is like just a book that's traveled through time we're not always out here to scare you 
I like that. Well, I mean, yeah, it started pretty scary. I'm not, I'll be real. I'll be real with you. you, you the way you were describing, it, I was like, "Get this thing away from you me! This needs to be stored in a vault. This is some like you don't, don't, don't crack this open. This is one of those right. things where like you know we shouldn't have asked. You like, must asked read from should. the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like uh, yeah. I mean, well, you took it straight to Devil's Bible, and I'll be honest, I I was feeling that too. You got some goat skin in there, but yeah, I mean, this feels like a real life Bilbo, like. Someone sat down and crafted this beautiful language. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh. Maybe just traveled and, you know, just this is what they saw along their travels. And mm. unfortunately, they just got, you know, the lost the time in this in the sense of like being able to actually understand what it is. That makes me really curious if the goat skin outside isn't the original to whoever wrote this. Because right now, obviously, there's no cover. There's no or rather title on the cover. It makes me wonder what the title would have been if there was a title what was on the original cover you know yeah there and back again <laughs> you're right <laughs> a traveler's uh, just, tale how about how about something more like uh this one's gonna throw you good luck with this one or something to that nature yeah hey have fun <laughs> <laughs> this one's just for me but yeah no i i really think that that's a compelling if not super interesting theory whether it's accurate or not i think that that's uh, really fun the next major theory is that this is a hoax and i mean it does make a whole lot of sense a hoax of some kind not exactly sure why uh, or what that what it would be after but let's dive in some believe that wilfred voynich himself fabricated the text he could have created the rumor that it was uh, written by the famous Roger Bacon as an advanced cipher to make a lot of money because, again, you know, he was a, an antique and rare bookseller and to have something that no one else has, yeah. especially when you're opening up your first U.S. shop. I mean, that's some good that's some good business, man. You slap that on a billboard. I'm coming. God, that honestly, that could be so true. Not as fun. Not um, as fun. But. but Definitely, yeah. Feels yeah. like, feels like uh, human nature, right there. You know, it would be obviously an extremely elaborate hoax. Uh, it would be very difficult to pull off, but with his knowledge of rare books and uh, in historical text, it's possible. Yeah. Who that, better than this yeah, person to yeah. do that? Now, one thing that kind of flies in the face of this, right? We referred to the pages, the vellum pages were carbon dated by the University of Arizona in 2009. And they do in fact place the book or these pages to have been created between the years 1404 and 1438. So again, not only is this hoax very elaborate, very difficult to convince people of, it's also, I'm sure, very difficult, if not impossible to obtain the amount of vellum pages necessary from this specific time frame in order to make a 240 page book. Yeah, that's commitment. That is commitment. <laughs> well, hey, people got time on their hands. I I mean, I don't know if it is impossible or not. You know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you, 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 you skim off the top. You find a bunch of old manuscripts that usually have a blank page at the end. Just scoop all those out. Maybe you got something. I, I don't know. But then wouldn't it be just, could, wouldn't you be able to tell there's just different pages from different times? Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That, that, but, it, but that's what really kind of throws a wrench into this theory. Others theorize that the Voynich manuscript was intentionally created by an alchemist to appear interesting or unique in order to entice buyers. 
which, you know, this is, this goes back to the old snake oil stuff, uh, or I guess this vastly precedes the snake oil stuff, but imagine, you know, back in this time, and you're trying to put on a show, as it were, and you, and you open up your book, and it's filled with languages that no one can understand, and it's got these, these drawings, and it's very detailed, it could just be a very fancy prop in order to entice people to, you know, buy whatever they were selling. Yeah, a little more, like, you know, devious in terms of, like, for profit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be expensive to make, so it's eaten into your profits. Uh, but some also believe that it was an art piece that was commissioned. I don't know. I didn't think about that. Yeah, right? Like, you just commission an artist to kind of, like, piece it together, and mm-hmm. and you're trying to create this mystery and this buzz around, uh, yeah. Right, because then there's, then there's no origin. Then there's there's no point to go back to then it's right? like if i know this piece it's like it's like tenant i i know 10 percent. you know 10 percent. <laughs> but however you know all that said literary forgery was uh was very common during the renaissance it's totally possible that this is a forgery that this is a hoax that this isn't you know a, a real uh piece of history with factual mysterious language within you know, people collected a lot of ancient works during that time period. They would spend a lot of money on them. And so it's totally possible that this is, you know, for profit in some way. Yeah, just how would you be able to tell? You know what I mean? Like historians get all these documents and these different things. It's just like, I'm, I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, you could look at the quality of, uh, I don't know, but the paper's aged and, and, and go mm-hmm. over with a fine tooth and comb and science the hell out of it. But right. <laughs> But I gotta say, it's just it's just difficult, right? So many different things. Yeah, I mean, th- what I like about the first theory so far is that, you know, you have experts backing some of this up, you know, because the last piece on this theory being a hoax is that some people were like, well, maybe this, this writing is in fact a form of speaking tongues, but in the written form. And what flies in the face of that is those experts coming forward and, you know, analyzing the patterns of this mysterious language and saying, no, there are actual patterns in play that you wouldn't tend to see with someone kind of making it up. Yeah, um, like you would, you would have really to really validating it. it. Yeah, which, which is a, which is which is a nice thought, and which for me that's kind of like one of the nails in in this coffin in terms of like I don't think it's a hoax. You know, when you have literal like people who are experts, you know, and kind of have like they're putting their name on the line by saying that. You know, like, why, why would you, right? Why would you, like, if you're, you're an expert and you're world-renowned, all that kind of stuff, like, why would you risk, like, ruining your reputation? Right. Well, I mean, this this theory is interesting. I, I don't want to write it off entirely. I think the, the flaw with this one in general is that it's, it's more broad strokes. It's more, well, sometimes people do these things. And I don't know, that's a, it's a, I guess it's a more cynical theory, but it is totally possible it just lacks the in-depth kind of fact-based, like point by point, that the first one has a little bit more of. Yeah, it's it's not as grounded. Yeah, I mean, it's just like it's the same thing, and I think a lot of this is the same sense for me. Like when you we were just like, oh, here's this photo of this creature. Like we don't know what it is. I'm just like, well, how do we know? It's not that's not like Photoshop. Like <laughs> that's a man. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just a man, and it's just the like grainy suit. footage. Or yeah, right. How do we know it's not a person in a suit? How do we know it's yeah. not Photoshop? Like. <laughs> this book is a man in a suit. A small, small man, an old man. <laughs> very tiny. Now, the last theory kind of has... It's, it's, it's very interesting. I think there's a lot in this one that kind of grounds it, very similar to, to, the, uh, to the first one. And that is that this book 
is a cipher of some kind. It's one of the other leading theories that, you know, this language is a cipher, an advanced cipher at that, because the text resembles a language, but it's the only example, at least that we have right now, of this language existing. And the difficulty of cracking this code has been compared to the Zodiac cipher, actually, a code that was only recently deciphered in uh, December of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's where a lot of people do think. So the fact that there are patterns here that lean into the language thing, uh, some of that evidence also does kind of play into this theory, that it is a cipher or steganography in some way, that basically there is hidden messages within this. It's also known that alchemists and scientists have used personal codes in order to protect their intellectual property. And and that's proven, uh, you know, they'll have a, yeah. a deciphering code, but basically that way if their work was ever stolen or seen in any way, you couldn't just be like, cool, copied your homework, now I'm the inventor of calculus, uh, bye. I mean, that did happen historically, that happened quite a bit. So it's, so it's not uncommon. And if this is what one of these books is, this is someone's intellectual property, which it certainly does look like it. Let me tell you, they did a good job concealing it. Did a very you know? good job. Or they, they uh, paid someone and that person did a really good job because right. my goodness. Yeah. And, and the fact that there's no grammatical errors in this either indicates, like you said, that someone was hired to write this or that whoever made this was a dedicated writer, someone that wouldn't mess up with pen and ink, right? Like True. I certainly would. I'd be scratching oh, things yeah. out all over the place. The number of pages I would have thrown away. Oh God, it's gotta be frustrating just to get pretty much almost to the bottom and then have to redo it all over again. Maybe that's why the pages are torn out. I goofed uh, on that one. Yeah. Head too big. Uh, gotta draw a new one. Can you imagine it's, it's literally the, just that simple? They're, these are not missing pages. It's just those were just torn out because they, be. it, was, it was a big goof. Could be. <laughs> Man, that's weird. But, uh, you know, what's interesting is that cryptography actually arose in Europe around the time that the vellum here in this manuscript is dated, right? The early 1400s. But mostly in the form of a substitution cipher, which is essentially one character for another. And the Voynich manuscript uh, could employ a more sophisticated cipher. It's not impossible. It's not of out of the realm. It's a, it would have to be a very verbose cipher. This type of cipher would essentially need to employ groups of characters in order to represent a single letter, which would be very complex, certainly at a time where you can't compute and calculate these things easily. It would have to be done by hand. It would have to be done consistently for 200 plus pages of writing and drawing. It's considered that this is unlikely for the time period and the location also that this book was discovered in, but also others consider this to be steganography, which is slightly different from a cipher in the sense that there are hidden messages within this text rather than this text having the answer as to, or needing an answer as to how to translate it. Basically implying it's, it's a subtle difference that I honestly don't fully comprehend. I'm not a cryptographer, but basically implying that there is messages hidden within it and that there needs to be a code book to go along with it in order to match the words and text to a meaning in some way and that the code book is what's missing and that's why it's so hard to figure out what's going on here god i mean if that's what it is you gotta be very proud of yourself you better you better be <laughs> like, like so many people just go uh, i'm trying but I don't know. Yeah, like we're talking about 14, early 1400s is when this like paper is dated to, this parchment. 
And man, that's like, that's just so wild to think about. Mm -hmm. But much like the linguistic theory, a lot of experts were brought in to really just put it through the ringer and see if they could crack this. I like that. <laughs> yeah, me too. William F. Friedman led a group of NSA cryptographers that tried to decode the text in the 1950s. And remember, cryptography and hidden messages were were yeah. huge at this point in time. Not that they've gone, but they, they were a huge topic at that time. They could not crack it. And uh, they did believe, though, that it was a constructed language of, of some sort. And then in 2016, very recently, artificial intelligence was utilized by Greg Kondrak and Bradley Hauer at the University of Alberta, and they could not decipher it, even with the use of complex technology and AI being able to adjust on the fly and try to try to pull this thing apart yeah. and analyze it. Oh, I'm conflicted because like this is what we wanted out of a lot of different mysteries, right? Mm -hmm. Or just like get this in the hands of like the right people and just throw everything at it and we're getting it. But mm -hmm. man, and it's just kind of, there's a small hint of frustration, but a lot of just like, I'm just satisfied that we're trying so many different ways, but like, yeah. oh man. I think what's so, it's like, yeah, we don't know what it's saying, but I think what's kind of nice about this one, and honestly, like I'm with you, I'm smiling this whole episode because it's so intriguing, but it's also lighthearted, at least until we figure out what the devil wants out of it uh, and what the language is saying. <laughs> we don't know, uh, but the possibilities at this point, I think, are what excite me. They're endless. Whatever could be in this book uh, it could be anything. And um, and the fact that nothing nefarious is associated with it, the fact that we can continue to analyze it and try to figure it out, it's just really cool. But one last expert had something to say with regard to it being a cipher, and that was Joseph Martin Feely. He claimed that it was a written language, actually Latin shorthand, readable only by the group that utilized that specific shorthand. So sure, you might know Latin, you might be able to try to go in there and figure it out. But, you know, I had shorthand in college that I would challenge you to be able to read, um, you right. know, just just quick ways to write a lot of information. And, uh, you know, if this is some sort of encyclopedia, there's a lot of drawings in there. It's only 240 pages. What better way to condense it than to use some sort of shorthand that you would think that you and your scholastic compatriots would be able to read? If you're a group of scholars, you know, you're like, this, this yeah. is fine. We'll always be around. Yeah. We'll always be able to. <laughs> nope. Sorry. We'll, we'll be able to like, if someone has questions, we'll answer it. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll answer it. I'll answer it. Oh, Mysteriously man. disappear. That is, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, you gotta be, uh, God, like, again, you gotta be proud of that, you know, mm -hmm. but you're, you're probably not around to, to reap that reward. But I never, I never thought about that. Yeah. Just, just shorthand. Yeah. Or uh, at that point. How would we really ever crack that? I don't know, man. You know, the Zodiac Cipher was also considered to be unsolvable. I think because of how much is written in this book and the fact that there is context with images do help, uh, but also the fact that it's so long might also make it quite difficult to decipher. The good thing is, like, I think when it comes to cracking ciphers like this, if it is a cipher, is there's a huge element of luck necessary that needs to come in play. You need to have world-class educated folks going after this with a huge level of luck. I think what happened with the Zodiac case was they were very smart, but they also, I think, might have stumbled into a way to backwards get into it. Yeah, like, like it just by chance. Yeah, and so, I don't know. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a cryptographer. I'm sure there's much more educated ways to kind of 
luck your way into some of these things, but mm -hmm. I think it's just going to have to be humanity going at this thing uh, for for years to come, and you know maybe supercomputers can start to help with that process. And but eventually we're going to find somebody who who just looks in the right way and has the right mind, and maybe something will fall out. And I think that'll be a yeah. really interesting time. Yeah, you're not you're not wrong about that. I mean, like you know, for example, the Zodiac stuff. Yeah. But that's it. That's the Voynich Manuscript. Man, it's, it really is like an ancient version of, of Cicada, especially the third and most recent Cicada puzzle, which has a book of runes. It makes me wonder if they aren't inspired in some way. Maybe, maybe, what if it was the same, you know, secret organization that's been around, some sort of like <laughs> Illuminati, like, and this is like... If you're able to read this, contact yeah, us at blank, right? you know, like at this, this and that. Right. Look, uh, yeah, I mean, I could, I could believe that there's like secret organizations and stuff like that. But like to what extent and how like efficient they are? I, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'll probably never know. Do you want to know? No. If you had the no, opportunity. I really didn't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a quick answer. Nope. No. Because <laughs> uh, they probably don't want to be seen or found and will go to great lengths to to make it that way right right i'm not gonna benefit from it no probably not yeah probably not <laughs> well that's the voynich manuscript another interesting mystery let us know what you guys think i, I would love to get you guys' eyes on some of the pages uh, like i said head to our twitter page at red web pod or take a look at you know google images or wherever you want to find your images uh, there's a bunch of these out there perhaps the the solver for this this cipher or this language could be somebody listening to this right now. Could be you. That'd be crazy. That would be crazy. I'm like, <laughs> dang. Like, get the task force out there. You know what I'm saying? You like just get them out there. <laughs> <laughs> but again, yeah, you know, April 6th, we got the task force stuff. So if you want to represent, we got a hoodie, a long sleeve shirt, two hoodies, I should say. One is limited edition. I'm speaking in vague terms. Eventually, we're going to post images of what this stuff looks like uh, once we're allowed to share it. We got a hat. We got a pin. We got a lot of stuff coming. It's really cool stuff, and uh, we'll probably we'll probably post it before we're supposed to. But oh, uh, but oh, follow will. us on Twitter. You'll take a look at it. You're going to love it. It's it's really really cool. It's clean. The team, the team put together some really cool looks. So represent. Yeah. Squad. So when you're out there, you know you can represent the task force on the go. Uh, but with that said, thank you guys for listening. Appreciate it. And we'll see you guys next week for another mystery. Later.